chapter 2 of John is where we are this morning. So please can I ask you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 11. John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. Uh, morning, church family. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm a part of the Coswold North Bible study. I think there's two Coswold North Bible studies. Um, I'm in the one run by uh, Gav and Sue, who very kindly host us in their home uh, every week. Yeah, like, uh, like David said, today's Bible reading is taken from John chapter 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs, through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. Um, Please can I ask you to keep your Bibles open to that passage. We're going to be looking at it, um, so it will be of great help for you to um, keep it open. Uh, As Royden said earlier, we are... Uh, in week two of our series called uh, Not the Jesus I Ordered. And I think it is fair to say many of us have expectations of who Jesus is, uh, what he has come to do, uh, and we bring those expectations into into life, into how we relate to him. And very often what happens is that when life hits us uh, and Jesus doesn't do as we expected, uh, we get disappointed uh, because he doesn't live up to our hopes Uh, to our dreams and our desires, uh, which is why we need to keep our Bibles open, uh, to be shaken by the message of Jesus from the Scriptures. Uh, So that's who we want to encounter uh, this morning. If you are new to church or you are new to the Bible, uh, you need to know that for us to do that, for us to be shaken by who Jesus is, uh, for you to encounter who he is, uh, you need to read what they call the Gospels. Uh, and those are biographies of the life of Jesus. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and this morning we are looking at John's Gospel. Uh, John is my second favorite uh, Gospel. You see, the iPhone user uh, did not put their iPhone on silent. I'm just a hater. Um, so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, John is my second favorite. Luke is my first uh, favorite gospel. Uh, and then John is my second favorite. What I like about him is that he gives you a God who is down to earth, uh, who comes into our world uh, very at the very word go in chapter 1, verse 1. He introduces us to God, and he says God um, this God came into uh, our world he, as if uh, he lived next door to us. So that is the God of uh, John's gospel, a God who lives and moves next door to you. How does he do that? He does so in the person of Jesus. Uh, John is saying we need to know Jesus so that we can know God. Uh, if you know Jesus, you will know God. Um, I imagine Jesus 
uh, if he were to come through uh, this ordinary man into Midland 2023, what kind of person would he be? Uh, would you even recognize him as God? Uh, well, uh, the reality is we won't, because he would just be an ordinary man, a God next door to you. Imagine you're staying in uh, by Lever Road here uh, at 9th on Lever, number 50, and Jesus moves next door to you, number 51. Uh, he drives an MP 200 because he works for his dad's construction company, Joseph and Sons. Uh, he's just an ordinary dude who wears ordinary clothes, uh, who speaks in an ordinary way. As a middle-class person, you'd size him up and say, ah, like he's not that impressive. Uh, and that is the Jesus we encounter in the scripture. Uh, an ordinary man wearing ordinary clothes uh, who came to reveal the extraordinary God to ordinary people like you and I. Uh, so that is the Jesus that we encounter here. And John says that it matters what you make of this Jesus. Uh, it matters what you make of this Jesus. And I've decided to title our message this morning, There's a Seed for You at the Table. Uh, now you can say that with me. There's a seed for me at the table. I, I hear it down here, but I don't hear it up there. There's a seed for me at the table. Uh, let me pray for us as we get into God's word. Uh, Father, we are so thankful that your mercy is more, that our sins are many, uh, that our shame covers us, uh, walks with us wherever we go, that our expectations of Jesus, very often we recognize uh, that they are not in line with the Jesus that we read in the scriptures. So this morning, I do pray, Lord, uh, that you would come and be with us in a special way, and uh, that we would see Jesus, this ordinary man, uh, doing extraordinary things, and that through Jesus we'll see you uh, and submit our lives to you. Through Christ our Lord, we ask. Amen. Now, as I said, that uh, the Gospels are a biography of the life of Jesus, now, I'm not a writer, but if I was given a task to, uh, to write, I would uh, bring uh, good writers together. I'd bring up a team of the best writers, uh, the best PR uh, marketers out there to present the very best of the life of Jesus. If I were to do it, I wouldn't choose uh, turning water into wine as the first miracle um, that I would um, go for. I would perhaps think about chapter 11. Uh, if you've read the, the Gospel of John, you know that chapter 11, Jesus raises somebody back to life. If you wanted to prove that a man is God himself incarnate and not just an ordinary human, I think I would put that first, that as the first miracle, uh, that God came into this world and he breathed life and he said to a man, get up, a man who was dead for three days. I wonder if you've seen a corpse before. It is lifeless. Dead people don't come back to life. And so I would put this as an example of a God who came into our world. Surely this man is God. Surely a man who can say to a, a, a dead person, rise up and come back to life, uh, should be worshipped uh, as God because he is God himself. I would choose chapter 11. Uh, perhaps maybe if I don't have access to that miracle as the first one, I would go with the healing of a blind man where Jesus spat on the ground, made mud, uh, smeared it on a, a man's face who was born blind, and this man received sight. Surely that's God. 
uh, surely that's uh, what I would go, you would go for. Uh, I would not go for providing alcohol at a party. <laughs> um, that is, that's not the Jesus I ordered. I became a Christian at age 14 at a Pentecostal church, Tabani Apostolic Faith Mission. And what, one of the marks of being a Christian was that you did not drink uh, alcohol. Uh, so this kind of version of Jesus, uh, we didn't like it. In fact, uh, we told stories that not what ha- what really happened here uh, is that Jesus didn't turn it into wine. What had happened is it was juice. Uh, it was only grape juice. Um, uh, so that's our encounter. That, that is our thought uh, of who Jesus is. So the question we should be asking ourselves is if a man is writing an account of the life of Jesus, the best presentation of God in the flesh, why in the world would he choose this kind of miracle? Why does he choose the turning of water into wine uh, as the first miracle? Now, we are going to discover why that's key to us understanding who Jesus is. Uh, there's a couple of clues that John gives to us. Uh, and John, I, I like him. One of the reasons I like him is also that he speaks in multiple layers. So you need to unpack layer after layer to really understand what John is saying. He doesn't give you things straight up. Uh, he goes in circles to make his point. So we're going to see the, a couple of clues that will uh, explain to us why this miracle is the first miracle and why it's the prototype, the blueprint for all the other miracles, why it is key to understand this miracle in chapter 2 because it is a key to unlocking what John, the kind of Jesus that we encounter in John's gospel. But let's have a look at the first clue there. In chapter 2, verse 11, this is how John ends of the miracle. He says this, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, John's main aim, if you read chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says that he's writing this gospel to present to us who Jesus is so that we may believe in him and that in believing we may have life, the good life. So he presents to us this first message and notice rather first miracle, and notice what John calls it. Uh, Verse 11, he calls it a sign. Uh, What does a sign mean? Well, a sign, according to one commentator, uh, it, it simply means this. Signs are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper reality. So in other words, this miracle that Jesus is, do, is doing of turning water into wine is something, it's pointing to something greater. It's a display of God's power, God's power in action that points to deeper realities. So it's not just about turning water into wine. There's a deeper meaning to what he is doing. Jesus is displaying the power of God. It is a sign to deeper realities. Um, we know signs, right? Uh, if you see a sign that says Rustenburg um, in Pretoria, well, you're not in Rustenburg. Uh, you haven't tasted glory yet. You need to drive a couple of more kilometers to get to Rustenburg. So the sign points you to the destination. And that is the case with the miracles in John's gospel. They point us to something greater than the signs themselves. They point us to what, who Jesus is and what he came uh, to do. Uh, so that is our 
first, uh, first uh, sort of clue, we're going to unpack this story and look at it in three different layers. Uh, one is the wedding, uh, the second one is the wine, and then the third one is the water. The wedding, the wine, and the water. Let's have a look at the first part of this, uh, this sign. The wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding in, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The very first introduction we have of Jesus is him at a party. Again, not the Jesus I ordered, uh, Jesus at the wedding. Uh, so you can picture with me the wedding DJ uh, playing Ama Piano. It is a, it is just joyful. Uh, people are happy. Uh, the food was amazing. Uh, they ate all sorts of uh, good things, seven colors as we call them in Rustenburg. The deco was on point. And the speeches were short, uh, unlike many weddings I've been to. Um, so it is a joyful, joyful uh, event. I wonder if you can remember the last wedding you went to uh, and the joy that it brings uh, when two people come together. But the joy here in this miracle, the joy here in the ancient world was much deeper than what we know and see. Uh, the joy, or rather weddings and marriages in the ancient world, were not just about the two couples and Hollywood love. No, it was deeper than that. It was two families coming together. Uh, it had economic implications for the daughter uh, because it meant that she has now found somebody to take care of her. It was a joyful, joyful experience. So it lasted for almost the whole week. Uh, so there was uh, the party, uh, good food, uh, partying all week. It was a big deal. Jesus, uh, the, John tells us that he was there. His disciples were there. Uh, the commentators tell us that by this time, perhaps Joseph was dead. Uh, so Jesus is kind of the man of the, the house. He's with his mom and his disciples. It could have been a family wedding that they uh, went to. Um, but as you and I read this, we don't have insight into what the ancient world thought. They would have had ideas of weddings, of feasts, of prolonged rejoicing in their head. Uh, they would have remembered the promises of God in the scriptures, where God promised that one day he will bring such an immense joy uh, to his people. It will be like an ever-ending party of good food, of wine overflowing. Um, I don't know to this day why wine is such a good thing, but you can talk to me about that after service. Apparently, it is amazing, right? And apparently, that's what the ancient world thought of. To have a good time, you got to have wine at the party. In fact, I was at my aunt's wedding. Because I don't drink, I had keys to the <laughs> the alcohol. It, it is, you don't want a group of people to stand in the way between them and their alcohol. Uh, they're having a good time. Jesus, or rather God in the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah 25, promises that one day he will destroy the shame of his people, their lowly state, and he will set up a party for them. Isaiah 25 says, but here on this mountain, uh, which mountain? The mountain of God in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. The God of angel armies, God of hosts, will throw a feast 
for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest food, a feast with vintage wines, Chardonnays and all of that good stuff from Stellenbosch, a feast of seven, uh, seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts, and on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish, he'll banish death forever, and God, listen to this, will wipe the tears from every face. This is the sign of rejoicing. These are the promises of God that one day he will do this. So as we read this story, we ought to be uh, recording to mind these promises. He'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people uh, wherever they are. Yes, God says so. God is promising that he will take this dead party that is his people and he will bring back life into it. Uh, so there's a deeper meaning to the wedding. That's the first scene. The second scene is the wine. Somebody say the wine. Wine is good. Have a look at verse 3. Uh, the wine, <laughs> the wine ran out. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This was a massive problem. Imagine a week-long uh, festival. Imagine running out of food. That is such a disgrace to the community, to your family. Uh, it was, uh, this culture was a culture of shame and honor. So for you to run out of wine at a wedding... It was just the, the most shocking thing. It was like running out of uh, meat at a Tosa wedding. You just don't do that, right? Uh, you'll be the talk of the town. They'll be asking, if this guy couldn't afford this wedding, why was he even inviting us to this boring party? What a shame this thing is. Um, if you don't understand, you've never been to a Tosa wedding, that's fine. Uh, think of RSVPing to a white wedding, Right? The kind of thing that's happening here is like not RSVPing. Because if you don't RSVP, we don't have food for you. Uh, we, we have catered enough uh, to, for people to feast. And this was a big shame uh, for this, uh, this, this wedding. They had run, ran out of wine. Uh, so much of a shame that in the ancient world, because the bridegroom, it was his job to provide, the the bride's family could even sue, her, sue him for not for bringing such shame to the family. Um, so this is the key moment in this story. It is a moment of shame. The closest thing we have to it is what we call the fire festival. I don't know if you know about that. Uh, Netflix has a documentary on the fire festival. This was the party, or rather, this was promised to be the party that would end all parties. Uh, people were coming from different parts of the world uh, to come to this party. Netflix titled it the, the greatest party that never happened. It was over 5,000 people buying and spending dollars to come to this party. There was promise that there were going to be chefs, uh, famous chefs from all across the world, famous artists. Uh, it was going to have luxurious accommodation in the Bahamas. It was going to be a good time. Uh, so much promises by this guy called Billy McFarland. But at the end of the day, they discovered that it was a scam. Uh, on the documentary, you see them driving into 
where the party was supposed to happen and there's like tents all over. Uh, they were expecting luxurious accommodation. And one of the girls, first of all, they rock up in a old school bus and they come to this party and one of the girls in the bus says, oh no, please take me back. It was a shame of note. It was a party that never happened. Uh, so much expectation, so little delivery uh, from, from this, uh, this guy, Billy. He was arrested for fraud. This was as serious as this in the ancient world. And the key word for us to understand this miracle is the word shame. A shame is how people receive you when such thing happened to you. Uh, when you do something like this, the community will not accept you. Uh, you will be, as I said, the talk of the town uh, for many, many years. Shame is one thing that human beings all have in common and experience. Shame is coming up here. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little secret uh, that uh, the previous rector said. He gave us tips on preaching. He said every time you walk up to preach, don't tell him I tell you, told you this. Uh, you must just check that your flyer is up. Uh, so he says every time I, I check if my zip is up, then I'm ready to go. Uh, being shamed is walking up here and your flyer is, is off. That is a shame. A shame is, well, not being right with people. In the Bible, shame is not being right with God. In the Bible, we see shame in the first few chapters as the very first couple sins and they do what they were not supposed to do and they are banished from the sight of God. Now, that is shame. Shame is being an outcast. Uh, shame is what they felt as they were in front of this holy God. Uh, they felt, somebody tell me, shame, what, but how, how was it described? As nakedness. Uh, they felt naked uh, before God. That is what shame is all about. Um, uh, uh, an unchristian author put it this way when she spoke about shame. Her name is Brene Brown. She says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Uh, to bring shame to your community means that you cannot function fully as a member of this society. We need to lay you uh, aside. Uh, shame, she goes on to say, shame is hiding the fact that I'm recovering from drugs. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next door neighbor. That is what we see in chapter 4 with this woman who suffers shame and cannot go to the well when uh, all the other women are there. But she's ashamed of her four divorces. Uh, she cannot bring herself uh, to coming to this uh, this well. Shame is, ask, is my wife asking me for a divorce, Brene Brown says, and telling me that she wants the children but not with me. That is shame. It is rejection. Shame is addiction to porn and hiding it. Shame is flunking and failing school, she says, twice. That is shame. What are you going to say to the people? You feel like less of a human. You feel that you are rejected by people and rejected by God. Uh, that is the deeper thing that is happening here uh, with, uh, with this miracle. It is pointing us to a deeper shame that you and I experience, a shame that Jesus has come to deal with, uh, of not fe feeling part of society and not feeling like we are worthy 
to be at the table uh, with God. Now that is one true, the wedding and the wine. Let's have a look at another clue in verse 4. Remember, we piece in together different things that would seem like they're not related. So on the one hand, we have a wedding, wine. Now we're talking about shame. Now Jesus is going to talk about something that seems unrelated to the miracle, but it's so key to us understanding what he has come to do. Have a look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, to the woman, woman, by the way, this is not how you speak to your mother. Uh, if it was a black mother, you would have just uh, clapped him. Uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Such a rude thing. Uh, if it was Zulu, who was saying, Ingena apimina. Uh, where... What do I have to do with the wine running out? Um, commentators say, and I think it is true, that Jesus' mother wasn't so much expecting him to do a miracle. He was expecting him to, as the man of the house, help these guys uh, with their sinful situation. Perhaps go buy some more wine and remedy the situation. But what Jesus says is quite shocking. He says, my hour has not yet come. What does that even mean? Uh, what does it mean his hour has not yet come? Well, if you read and go on to read in John's Gospel, the word hour refers to a specific time in the life of Jesus uh, as he goes to die on the cross. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour to die on the cross has not come. That's bizarre, isn't it? Uh, chapter 7, verse 30, we see this idea of hour. Uh, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 23, as Jesus prepares to die on the cross, this is what John says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the hour for him to die on the cross. What does that have to do with the wine running out? We'll figure that out in just a moment. But let's have a look at our last point, which is the water. So we looked at the wedding, the picture of uh, what God has prepared and promised for his people. Uh, we looked at the wine. It is a picture of rejoicing. It is a picture of sitting at the table with God. Um, but here it is a picture of shame because they ran out of wine. What is shame? Shame is being rejected by your community and feeling like you've been rejected by God, that you are not worthy to sit, sit at the table. Have a look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, so we're looking at the water. That's another clue for us to understand this miracle. Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stones Six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now be, tasted the water now became become wine, and did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Verse 10, 
This is the good party that the Lord has provided for his people. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But, when, but you have kept the good wine until now. Okay, so what does the water have to do with the wine? Why does Jesus use Jewish containers to perform this miracle? I'm sure they, were, they drew water from somewhere else. Why couldn't he just turn that water? That's another clue to us understanding this miracle. Jewish, these Jewish containers were used for ritual cleansing. What ritual cleansing meant is that you had to go through a process of cleansing before you can come in the presence of God. Before you can have a seat at the table with God, you ought to be cleansed. And so what do we see there? We see that this shame, Jesus comes to restore it, but he's giving us but a taste of when his hour comes. Because when his hour comes, he's going to read us or read this uh, old Jewish tradition. He's going to destroy the old ways of getting rid of shame and usher a new way of uh, welcoming people in the presence of God. How does he do that? Well, he does so through the cross. What is the cross? The cross is the symbol of the greatest of shame. Uh, the cross is, uh, you would have been hung naked. You would have been spat at. Uh, Jesus hung on the cross as a way for us uh, to rid ourselves of our shame. He took upon himself on that cross your shame and my shame, your guilt and my guilt, uh, to free us from that shame and that guilt so as we can have a relationship with him. That is what the miracle of turning water into wine is. It means that you and I cannot be welcomed at the table of God and rejoice with him, that you and I have a seat at the table, not because of anything that you have done, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. Uh, because there on that cross, he took upon himself our shame, our guilt, uh, so that we can have a seat at the table. And I think very often that is not the Jesus that we order, isn't it? Uh, we are middle class people. Of course, we don't use ritual cleansings. We don't do this stuff. Uh, but we do things that would have us rid ourselves of our shame. We do things so as to become more acceptable before God. And I think the key word for middle class people is performance. Okay, so we don't have rituals, but we have performance. And performance is our way of trying hard to rid ourselves of shame. Performance is a way of uh, proving to Jesus that I can obey. And the more I obey, the more you are to bless me with a good life. The more you are to rid myself of, rid, rid me of uh, the shame. The more you are to give me good stuff to cover up this deep feeling that I'm not right with God. Uh, very often performance is our ritual cleansing. Uh, but Jesus reminds us this morning that we don't have to do that. We can come freely to his table. You have a seat at the table. Look at the person sitting next to you and say, you have a seat at the table. Don't be scared. You can do that. Uh, you have a seat at the table. And very often, here's the thing. We, we often feel like we are never good enough for that. We need to perform more. 
Uh, we are never perfect enough for Jesus. We need to do more rituals. Perform, perform, perform. Come to church. Give money to church. Give money to charity. Do all sorts of good things so that somehow the same can be removed from you and I can have a relationship with God. Jesus reminds us that there's a seed for you at the table. Perhaps you came in this morning. Maybe you haven't been to church for many years. Perhaps the last time you were at church, you confessed your sins to someone and they made you feel shame instead of bringing you to Jesus who heals you. Uh, Perhaps you think that I'm too sexually broken for Jesus. I'm deep in my addiction for for Jesus to accept me. I'm too much of a moral failure. Well, that may be a reality. Maybe you are deep in your sin. Perhaps that is just a sign that your wine has run out and Jesus offers you wine in abundance. Amen. Jesus is here to offer you wine in abundance. A seat at the table with the king himself. God does not condemn you as you walk through those doors here this morning because he's done it all uh, for, for your shame, your guilt to be, to be removed. Uh, maybe you fall under social pressure and you think to yourself, man, maybe if I just stay sober for a week, I would be okay. Maybe if I'm a good parent, if I can hold my marriage together, then and only then will I have a seat at the table. Jesus reminds us this morning that you have a seat at the table. You can enjoy a relationship with God, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what he has done. You don't have to clean up your act and cleanse yourself uh, to come uh, to come to him. Uh, our God is a God who comes to us, who comes to us into our shame. That's chapter 1. He takes on the shame of human flesh. He dies a death that we deserve so that we can be saved. That is the God of the Christian story. And I want to end it off by just sharing a story because I think we often hear this, but it doesn't hit home with us uh, that we have a seat at the table. We often hear that Jesus died for our sins, but we go on into this week and we are faced with our failure And we just don't believe that. Um, We just don't believe that we belong to this family uh, of God. Now, so I just wanted to end off by sharing a story. And this is a story of, it's a true story. Um, But I'm going to change the names and the places so as to protect uh, the person. Uh, This happened to a friend of mine. We'll call him Tabo. Uh, Tabo is a typical Tuana, or rather Sotu name. Uh, the Tuanas have imported. Uh, Tabo is from Hamanskral. Uh, by the way, if Jesus came to Midrand, he would be from Hamanskral. Um, because as the scriptures say, has anything ever good, any, anything good ever come out of Hamanskral? Um, anyway, so ta- uh, Tabo from Hamanskral, a typical Tuana boy, grows up without a dad. We've heard that story before, isn't it? And many of us have experienced the story of our dads not being around. I'm one of those. Uh, but there's always this longing and deep longing to have a relationship with your dad. And Tabo had that longing to have a relationship uh, with his father. Uh, so he grows older without his dad. And then he goes on a quest in varsity to look for his father's family. 
so he finds them. He asks around. Uh, here's the thing about uh, communities where I grew up. They can hide a secret for years. They can know. Everyone else knows who your dad is, but you don't know who your dad is. So you just have to ask around. Um, so he asked around, and he found out that his dad was actually Zulu. Yeah, yeah. So when you find out you're a Zulu man, I don't know what it is about Zulu men, but they want us to know they're Zulu men. Yeah. So, uh, my apologies. <laughs> I am 10% Zulu, so uh, nothing I see here uh, is to offend you. But in any case, he finds out that he's Zulu, so he goes on a quest to, to, to reconnect with his father's family. Uh, his dad has passed on, he finds out, uh, so he can't have a relationship with his dad. But at least he has an opportunity to sit, sit, sit at the table uh, with his extended family. He discovers that not only is he Zulu, but he's in Gubani. Now, if he's Zulu you'd know that there's a distinctive feature uh, that the Ngubanis have. Uh, can someone show me from the audience? Okay. Someone says this. Okay. They are, I don't know which, which hand it is, but they have a, at, at a young age, they cut off uh, the pinky so as to mark you as someone who belongs to the family, as someone who has a right and a birthright to sit at the table. Uh, so... I know what you're thinking, that must be painful, but they do it when you're young, so you can't remember any of that. Um, but here's the catch. If they don't do it when you are young, and you want to be incorporated into their family, you have to go through that process. And so, it must have been two years ago that uh, Tabo calls me, uh, he video calls me. I normally hate video calls. I like making video calls. I don't like receiving them. But for this situation, it was, yo, what I was about to see was shocking. He calls me and says, I did it. And I'm like, in my head, what did you do? I, I did not have context as to what had just happened. I knew that he went to KZN, but I didn't know what had happened. Uh, and so he says, I did it. I'm like, what did you do? Um, and then he shows me his finger through this video call, and I couldn't hide my reaction. It was a bandaged finger. He had cut it off. He had cut off his finger, and I knew at that moment that I was no longer a village boy because I asked a very stupid question. I asked him, did they use any anesthetics? <laughs> Obviously, they didn't. Uh, they didn't even use Schedule 4 painkillers, none of that. He went ahead and used a razor to cut off his finger so as to be part of the family. Now, I'm not saying this thing, if you are a Zulu, he was proud of this thing. So I'm not saying it to mock Zulu culture or anything like that. But that is the extent that he had to go through to be part of this family, to have a seat at the table. And when he had finally did it, he was proud enough to say, I now belong to this family. I'm now a Zulu Man, I'm now Ngubani. By the way, black is Ngubani, but he's not, he's a fake one because, <laughs> because his pinky is still on. But I, I share that story because I think in many ways, uh, we may cringe at the thought of that. Uh, for him, it was a proud moment of becoming part of the family. But very often, as Christians, we don't believe, as Christians and people who hear the gospel message, when God says you have a seat at the table, 
Very often it is difficult to hear that. Very often we cut our fingers so as to belong. What does cutting our finger mean? Well, we perform more and more. We do all sorts of things to show face to people around us, uh, to perform for God, so as to have a seat at the table. And God wants us to remember this morning that you don't have to cut your finger to belong. You don't have to cut your finger to sit at the table. You have a seat at the table. Uh, you have a seat because Jesus cut his own finger so as you can be incorporated into his family. In chapter 1, uh, John reminds us that he came to this very people, the Jewish people, with all their cleansing rituals, and his very people did not embrace him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, sons of God, people who belong, people who have a seat at the table. And what God wants you to know this morning, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you have a seat at the table. You don't have to cut your finger to belong here. You belong. Amen. Uh, please bow your head as our leaders in a time of prayer. Perhaps you came in uh, with shame and you've had the gospel message that you have a seat at the table. And as I pray and lead us, maybe you can make that your prayer as well, as you listen in on this prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came into our world, a feeble, ordinary man, to reveal God to us, to reveal God to me, a sinner. I thank you that this morning uh, you covered my shame, you covered my sin, I uh, thank you this morning that you died on that cross so that I can have a secure seat at the table. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for the gift of the gospel. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. That although we come in with expectations, although we come in with a performance mentality to rid ourselves of our shame, we thank you that in Jesus, we don't have to do that anymore. That in Jesus, we have access and full access to you, the Father. And so I pray that today we would submit to him and that as we step into this week, we would not believe the lies that we have to cut our finger to belong but that we would know that we belong to you because of what Christ has done. And it is in his name we pray. Amen and amen.